0: Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to Paul's letter uh, to uh, the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians. We have been uh, going through the Gospel of Mark uh, lately, but we're just taking a short break. And uh, this morning, I want us to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're using the church Bibles, uh, you'll find this on page 966. We'll be focusing in on the language of verse 17, uh, but we want to look at it in the broader context, and so we'll begin our reading back at verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and beginning our reading at verse uh, 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Well, uh, with the new year upon us, uh, it is a time when uh, many people have a sense of excitement, a sense of optimism. Uh, There can be a sense of energy about approaching uh, the new year. Uh, People celebrate uh, the new year uh, because the new year brings with it new possibilities and uh, the excitement of what lies ahead. Uh, It can also be uh, a time of anticipation because It allows us to turn the page, uh, to turn over uh, from the past and to look for better things uh, lying ahead. And so oftentimes people uh, approach the new year uh, with celebration or with excitement and anticipation. And even if we're approaching the new year this morning without that sense of uh, uh, energy or that sense of excitement, uh, we would no doubt like uh, to have that. Uh, to be able to approach the future, to be able to approach the things that are upon us with a sense of uh, optimism and a sense of uh, expectation. Well, as we're uh, thinking about the new year, I want us to turn back to something that Paul says uh, under the theme of newness uh, here in this letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, that Paul speaks about newness. Uh, But not just about new possibilities, but about a new reality. And this morning, we want to look at that verse, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And we want to see that because God has brought about this new reality by grace, that we are to be shaped by this new reality that is established in Christ. We want to think about this verse in two thoughts we want to think about a new reality that is longed for and then secondly a new reality that has come well first we have the new reality uh, that is longed for um, we see it uh, every year uh, when there's that sense of excitement around celebrating a new year uh, looking forward uh, to better days looking forward to new possibilities uh, but As Paul is talking about newness here, uh, he's speaking and thinking about the work of God. And as he writes to the church in Corinth, uh, commentators have highlighted that there's really three reasons why Paul is writing this letter. The first reason why he's writing to the church in Corinth here is to give thanks. Uh, He's thankful that the tension that existed between him and the church in Corinth uh, seems to have been settled. And so he is expressing his confidence in the church in Corinth. He's thankful uh, that that conflict has uh, been dealt with. Uh, And so he acknowledges that, the change that has happened uh, between him and the church in Corinth. The second reason why he writes to them is to ask them to support the giving ministry. You remember the, the great project of Paul was to raise funds for brothers and sisters that were in need, uh, principally the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And that is part of the reason uh, why he's writing to the church in Corinth, to stir them up, uh, to help uh, their brothers and sisters in Christ. But the third reason why Paul is writing is because there are apostolic pretenders. There are people that have taken up residence in the church in Corinth who have really been attacking Paul Uh, that they have many criticisms of Paul and they're really trying to undermine uh, the place of Paul uh, in the life of the church. Uh, Paul refers to them as super apostles. These are people who have a high view of themselves and have been really attacking Paul. And so Paul has to respond to some of these criticisms. And that's really where the end of this letter will turn to. But even here in chapter five, you already can sense that it's there. In what Paul is writing about. As Paul is describing himself. Back in chapter 3. He described himself as a minister. Of the new covenant. He described himself as a servant. Announcing. The fulfillment of God's promises. A new reality has come. A new covenant has been established. And Paul sees himself as one who has been commissioned to announce that to others. He is going to declare to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as he is doing that, he is is a minister of this new covenant. There are people that are casting doubts or suspicion about Paul's real motives. Why is Paul doing what he does? And so as we read through chapter 5 there, you notice how Paul defends his motives. He defends himself as a minister. That his purpose, he says earlier, is uh, he does everything to please Christ. Uh, He does everything, as he says there in verse 10, uh, knowing the fear of the Lord. He says in verse 13, he does what he does out of a genuine concern for the converts. And he does what he does uh, ultimately following the example of the love of Christ himself. So Paul is defending his ministry, uh, a minister of the new covenant. He's not doing it uh, for selfish gain, but rather uh, in light of uh, the reality of this new covenant. But this morning, we are really looking at what that new covenant is all about. What is this new reality that Paul is proclaiming? Uh, And Paul here uh, describes it very succinctly in verse 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. As with many people, the scriptures look forward to a new reality, to a new state. But not just to new possibilities. What Paul is talking about here is to a new reality, a new state of existence of being restored with God. That Paul's language here, you'll notice it's very striking, the way he talks. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new Creation. The old has passed, the new has come. Paul's language here is not just strikingly bold, it's also very intentional. That Paul is using language that is intentionally from the prophet Isaiah, and in particular from that passage we read in Isaiah 43. In Isaiah 43, it is in the context of God's message of comfort to the people that God is announcing to them no longer to think on former things, but to realize that God is going to do a new thing. That rather than being bogged down by the works of the past, whether it's the glory days of the past, what God did once for us, or whether it's thinking about the former things of what we have done since then, our sins that have brought us into judgment, into exile, and into ruin. In that context, Isaiah announces to them, he exhorts them to no longer think on the former things, but rather to look forward to a promised restoration. Not only would they be restored to the land, but they would be restored in favor with God. Israel was longing for new things. Israel was longing for new possibilities. But they were longing for that because they recognized their sin had brought ruin. Their sin had separated them from God. And ultimately, it then separated them from their homeland. And so the reality of their experience was one in which they wanted, they wanted things to be different. They wanted things to be better. And yet they couldn't bring it to pass. And it would be very easy in that context to simply dwell on the past. We had it good, didn't we? And we let it all go. But it's in that context that Isaiah says, don't dwell on the past. Don't dwell on these former things. Don't even dwell on what once God did. Because God is going to do something even bigger. He's going to do a new thing. The new thing is going to be so great It has to be described, it has to be compared with creation itself. It'll be a new creation that God brings to pass. It'll bring such drastic changes. And so the people of God longed for a new state of reality. But it wasn't just a longing because the present lacks. Because they realize that the way things are at present aren't perfect. They were longing for a better reality because they realized the root problem is is that they had sinned against their God, which brings that separation. But also they were living with that longing because God promised them that he would bring it to pass. That God himself said, behold, I am doing a new thing. So why is it that we look forward to something new? It's because we recognize something is lacking that the reason why we don't just carry on is because we realize we were destined for more we were destined to uh uh, to enjoy a, a better state even isaiah was telling the people they were created to give forth praises to god and here they are not desiring even to do that they're 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 not living up to what their created mandate was And so this this reality of longing for more teaches us something of uh, not only uh, the lack of what we enjoy in the present, but also it should point us to why is it that we expect things to be better in the future? We're we're, we're starting a new year. There's a, a sense of excitement perhaps for many of us. Why do we expect the new year to bring good things? Why do we expect the new year to be better than the past? It's it's from the standpoint of faith that we can move forward with confidence that the new, the future, is in God's hands. And that what God's purposes are, are good. And so here we see not just a longing for a new or a better reality, uh, but that longing is built on and based on the promises of God's Word. Isaiah told the people, God has promised, behold, I am doing a new thing. So when we get to 2 Corinthians and we see the striking language, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Paul is taking those key words from Isaiah and saying that promise that was given to the people of God about restoration, about uh, restoring them in the favor with God, not only restoring them to the land, but restoring them with their God, that promise is being fulfilled now in Christ that Jesus has come uh, to bring about this new uh, reality. Now, there are passages in the New Testament that stress the fullness of uh, this new reality has not fully yet come. Uh, There is a tension between this already uh, and the not yet. But here, Paul is stressing this new age, this new creation has begun. That, That in the coming of Christ... Things have changed forever and it is not going back. That things are forever changed now that God's purposes have been fulfilled in Christ. That in Christ, it says, God was reconciling the world to himself uh, and gave a ministry of reconciliation. So Paul sees himself as a minister, one who is declaring what God has done in Jesus Christ. How has this new creation come to pass? How has this great change uh, taken place? It's through what Paul says, Christ reconciling sinners to God. That, that they have been reconciled with God. You think of the language of the Bible. The Bible describes God's work in so many different ways. You think of the language of justification. That comes from the sphere of the courtroom. It's a legal declaration, a pronouncement of being right or wrong in the sight of God. You think of the language of sanctification. That comes from the sphere of the temple, of one being uh, consecrated and holy and sacred before God. You think about the word adoption. Adoption. That comes from the sphere of the uh, slave market. Of welcoming one into the family who was not actually from your family. And here you see this language of reconciliation. That comes from the sphere of friendship. That when you are reconciled, one who was your enemy has now become your friend. And here, this great change that has come about is because Christ has reconciled sinners to God that he has caused those who were at odds with God on account of their sin to be made friends with God ultimately through his work and notice there in the summary in verse 21 how this is explained for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God this is how this great change has come about It's through Christ's suffering and through Christ's righteousness. It says it made that he who knew no sin was made sin. Not that he was made sinful. The Bible is explicit that he was not sinful. But that he was made sin. Meaning he took responsibility of it. That he he shouldered it and suffered the consequences of it. Although he wasn't a sinner, just as Isaiah himself said about the servant of the Lord, that although there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was offering up his life as a sacrifice, as a guilt offering, that although he was sinless, he endured the penalty of sin. And so all of this is describing to us his suffering and how it is that God has worked, how this new creation has come to pass. It is the work of God reconciling sinners to himself. Back in verse 19, it says all this has happened uh, because God was reconciling the world, not counting their trespasses against them. That language of counting is bookkeeping language. You think about uh, keeping track of your, uh, your bills, uh, your credit card. You see a list of your uh, debts that have to be paid. Uh, our sin is described as a debt that needs to be paid, but a debt that we can't pay ourselves. But here it says that God was not counting their trespasses against them, but it was paid by another. That Jesus paid the penalty of sin, through his own suffering and his own death on the cross. This was the work of God in order uh, to reconcile sinners to himself. But not only does Christ take away the problem of a sin, he also provides us all that we need in order to enjoy God's friendship. That in him we become the righteousness of God. So that we are, we are treated with the love that the Son enjoys Because we are clothed in his righteousness. So this is uh, this new creation Paul uses. He's leaning back and saying God promised he would do something grand. He would restore sinners unto his favor. He would he would show his mercy towards those who didn't deserve it. And this is being fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Christ's coming changes everything because he suffered the penalty of sins, because he provides a righteousness that makes enemies of God into friends of God. And as a result, this change is all uh, shaping of reality. That's why Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We were singing there from Psalm 71 about how the servant of the lord endures earth's darkness but the lord would restore him ultimately that's ultimately what the cross is about that jesus endured the judgment of god he was we could say sent into exile that he was he was treated as the object of god's wrath but ultimately he was restored When he was raised from the dead. That after he was punished. He entered into paradise. That. That. The judgment he experienced. Gave way to his restoration. And because Christ was resurrected. Those who are joined with him. Enter into that new creation. You see what Paul is saying here. Is he's not just talking about a personal transformation. Although that's true, Paul seems to be pointing in the direction that if anyone is in Christ, they have come to be part of God's his final work. They are part of the redeemed in the new age. They are part of those whom the Lord has pleased to be counted as precious in his sight. They are those who are the objects of his mercy and who give forth praises to his name. That Christ's resurrection shapes all of history now. And it brings a new reality to the way people live. And so uh, if we are trusting in Christ, if we're united with Christ, then we share, we participate uh, in this new reality that has begun. But you'll notice there that Paul uses that word if. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. It's only if we are united by faith with Christ that we have come to be part of God's grace. It's only if we have been united with Christ that we are a new creation. And so the question becomes, have you come to trust in Christ? Are you united united with him? Or do you continue to live your life day by day ignoring the reality of what God has done. This is why Paul goes on to say there in chapter 6, Behold, today is the day to call on the Lord. Now is the time of favor. Today is the day of salvation. That we are to call on him while he is near. Because God has done something that calls forth a response. And that it's only by trusting in Christ that we can be made right with God that we can enjoy his praises and that we can live uh, enjoying the reality of God's works. So this uh, new work, this new creation has come in Christ. Christ has reconciled sinners to God. He's done that through his suffering and his death. But we can ask ourselves as well, what is the consequence of all of this? Uh, Dane Ortland makes a point that when we read the language in Christ, We can think not only how a person is saved, but we can also think of that language in terms of when. Where are we in history? The language in Christ is telling us about the dawning of a new creation. Christ has come to make all things new. And so this language here, we're trusting in the Lord Jesus ourselves. What difference does this make? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. What difference does it make being part of that new creation? There are a number of things that we can see in this chapter. First, it changes or brings forth a new principle. Back in verse uh, uh, 14, Paul talks about how the love of Christ controls us. That for the believer... All of life now is lived in light of the reality of what God has done in Christ. That God loved me and gave himself for me. Now I am shaped and controlled by that dynamic. It brings a new principle to the way that I'm going to live. It not only brings that new principle of being structured by the love of Christ, it brings forth a new aim. Paul says, so that we would no longer live for oneself, which is our default. We default to living for number one, meaning ourselves. But the grace of God brings forth a new aim in life. No longer to live for oneself, but to live for him who died and was raised. To live for Christ and for his glory. The believer has a new aim in life that they're pursuing. It brings not only a new principle, not only a new aim, it brings forth a new perspective. In verse 16, he says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. There was a time when we regarded people according to the flesh. He even says, we even regarded Christ according to the flesh at one time. What does he mean by that? He means that we looked on others from a worldly point of view, one that is based on outward appearances, one's status in society, one's background, one's importance in society. We look at things from a worldly point of view. But he says, I've learned no longer to look at people based on their backgrounds, on their wealth, on their, on their skill set. I'm no longer looking at them based on their, their connections. But I look at them differently now. He said he looked at Christ even from an outward perspective. You remember how it was popular to think about the Christ basically as a military provider, one that would deliver them from the Roman rule. That mindset was a very outwardly or a worldly mindset about the Christ. But he said we've learned not to look that way about the Christ. That his whole mindset about the Messiah has changed. Imagine someone coming up to Paul in the first century and saying, uh, Jesus is the Christ. He would say, probably in response, How can that be? He was crucified. The Christ is supposed to be victorious. He died. Deuteronomy says, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. But ultimately, Paul was changed in his way of thinking. So that he could turn around and say, Christ died, but was raised in victory. That Christ was cursed, but not because he was sinful, but he was made sin in order to offer up his life as a ransom for many. And then he could take those passages in Deuteronomy and say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. Because it is written, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. He started to look at Jesus completely different. He didn't look at the Christ just from an outwardly worldly point of view. But now he sees him as the one doing the work of God in saving sinners. And he sees the cross in a very different light. But what is key is, is that the change of his view of the Christ changes the way that he looks at others. We no longer look at other people simply based on their outward appearance, but we look at them in relation to Christ, those who need a redeemer, and those who have been redeemed. And so Paul is saying this new creation brings a change in the principle of what I'm living for. I live by the love of Christ that controls us, I live for a new aim. My aim now is no longer to live for me, but for him who died and gave himself for me. It means now that I'm living with a mindset of a perspective that is shaped by a knowledge of God's grace. And very quickly, it says, uh, it brings a new freedom as well. In verse 17, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. This new creation brings with it a freedom from what has gone before. Remember, Isaiah was telling the people, uh, he was exhorting the people no longer to be looking to the, the past, not to dwell on the past acts, not to dwell even on their, uh, what they have done leading up to their present situation. In order that they're not left in despair, whether they think the glory days are gone, or whether they simply conclude, I've ruined everything and there's no hope. Isaiah told them, do not focus on the former things. Rather, God is going to do a new thing. And so, here, when Paul celebrates the truth that there's this new creation that has come in Christ, he says the old has passed. We are no longer controlled. We are no longer uh, crushed by what has gone before. They are upheld by the knowledge of God. And they are living knowing that he can restore what they have messed up. And so if you're a Christian this morning, that means that you come to be part of that new creation. That old way of life no longer controls you. There has been this break from the past. And it has been inaugurated a new life through the resurrection of Christ. My story is not shaped ultimately by my sin. My story now falls under the rubric of Christ's work. And so I live now with this understanding that the past is not how I'm defined, but I'm defined by being related to Christ. The new has come, and that changes everything. So as we begin a new year where there's lots of excitement about the possibilities or the longings of what could be. Christians have something better because we're not just longing for new. We're not just thinking about new possibilities. The Christian faith teaches us a new reality has been established in Christ. And if you are joined with Christ by faith, you enjoy the blessings of God And you are shaped by God's grace. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to see that we have something to celebrate in Christ. To be able to live, uh, not uh, aimless, uh, but people that are uh, shaped by the work of our God. We thank you that you are a God who announces your works, and we thank you that in Christ we can see their accomplishments. We pray, Lord, that we would be shaped then uh, of our, un- our understanding of how to live um, by the God who has worked, and we pray that you would help us uh, to uh, not be controlled by the past, by our, our own failings, or whether it is by uh, the things that once were, But help us, Lord, to live in light of your works and to live with the confidence of what lies ahead. Go before us in Jesus' name.